I've never been able to fact check it. It's probably a fictional story, but allegedly there is a university with a laser research laboratory with a prominent sign that says, warning, do not look at laser with remaining eye. We are strange creatures. We ignore warnings, and in fact, it seems like a warning sign provokes us to do whatever the sign says we're not to do. Case in point, the speed limit. All of us always drive a couple of miles under the speed limit, no matter where we are, even though there's a warning that it's probably better not to take that curve over 95, but we ignore the signs. For a time in a former life, I pushed wrenches, a diesel and truck and car mechanic, and I was amazed at the number of people that would ignore warning signs on their vehicles. In the 70s, we called them idiot lights because lights would go on in your dashboard that told you it was time to do something. Check engine. And I literally have seen people put black tape on a dashboard to cover over a sign because they didn't want to, quote, pay to have it fixed, close quote. In the 70s and 80s, they had brake wear indicators on your brakes. I know this is scintillating to those of you who care not about cars, but they had a little device, and it screeched really loud and annoying when the pads on your brakes needed changing. And it would do this for a few hundred miles, and it was designed to break off this little tang so it didn't ruin the rotor further. So people would drive for a couple, my brakes are so loud, they're so loud, they're so loud. And then all of a sudden it would stop and go, oh, they must be fixed. And so people for ever ignore the warning signs because it's going to cost you money to go to the mechanic and have it fixed. Well, the mechanic's going to charge you a little now or a lot later. That's the warning. Recently, I had a very extensive physical. My primary care doctor said, Michael, you need to get a good physical. So I went and had a four-hour physical. After it was over, the doctor sent me a printout of all my numbers and labs, and both my primary doctor and this doctor who did the test said, you have some really low numbers here and here, and let's try this and this. And with two very simple changes, one a vitamin and one a supplement, I feel a whole lot better. I mean, significantly better. But it took a doctor, and it took people who are trained to read blood chemistries and to measure it against other norms to tell you, Michael, these are things that are low and need attention. Why do we ignore going to the doctor? Well, I'm proud because I never go to the doctors. That's like saying, I'm really stupid. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You don't know everything about your blood chemistry. You feel fine. In your 30s, 40s, and 50s, it's fairly easy to address. In your 60s and 70s, it will not be easy to address. And they are there to help us. You pay a little now or a lot later. Why do we ignore warnings in life? Why do we ignore the warning on our computer that says you need to upgrade your virus protection? I don't want to pay another 30 bucks. They ripped me off. Okay, where do you get a virus? You'll pay them hundreds of dollars to get a new hard drive. And you'll be out of commission for two or three weeks until you get everything rebuilt. Because we all back up all the time, don't we? Why are we so slow to heed a warning? And not just our bodies or computers or cars, but what about in the spiritual life? 
when we're given a warning, a clear warning from the Scripture, from God's very Word, why are we slow, reticent, dismissive? I've never seen a doctor. I don't need to go to the doctor. When the physician of your soul is giving you and me ample warnings. We were looking, we will look at a text today that is a warning. In fact, I will argue it is perhaps the greatest warning Jesus has ever given. And the question for you as we look at the text is will you listen to the warning or not? I also want you to do something today we don't do very often, and that's turn in your Bible to a number of pages and passages. If you have a cheater's version and you use one of these devices, you'll get there quicker than us, but I'd rather you do that than not look at a Bible. If you have a real godly, spiritual, growing, mature thing like this, then you'll have a little time to turn through it. If you didn't bring a Bible, nose on to your neighbor, or better yet, if you want, we've got Bibles and racks out there, and it wouldn't embarrass me or anyone if you want to get up, slip out, stretch your legs, grab a Bible, come back in. They're there for you to use. First of all, let's jump to Luke 11. Luke 11, verse 50. I want you to see some of the warnings that Jesus has given, and we're going to look later at two Old Testament passage warnings, and we'll even look at a warning in the book of Revelation before our time is up today. So we're thinking about warnings and why don't we listen to the warning? Why don't we heed the warning? And what is the response to the warning? What's the proper response? Luke 11, beginning at verse 50, God had told them that he sent prophets to you. And what did you do? You didn't listen to him and you killed them. Many of the messengers I sent to warn you to turn you to repentance, to give you the message of God you didn't listen to. You killed them. Luke 11, verse 50, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. That is, that's a message right there. Since the foundation of the world, I, I sent people to you to tell you, and the blood of those prophets will be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. For the English mind, that's easy, from A to Z. From Abel to Zechariah, yes, I tell it, it shall be charged against this generation. You've been given information, he's speaking primarily to the Jew, that God, Yahweh Elohim, chose you to be his people. You're to believe and follow him, and you kill the messenger every time I send him. So we're going to think about warnings. Why do we repress them? Why do we ignore them? Why don't we respond to them? And what does the response look like? Now turn to Luke 23, our text today. Luke 23, we'll begin at verse 26, where Simon carries the cross. Luke 23, beginning at verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, only Rome could render criminal punishment. We've talked about this a number of times. In the religious system for the Jew, under Rome, Roman occupying their country, under that law, they could issue their religious and civil affairs with authority. But when it came to a criminal issue, they needed Rome. You can't execute or carry out capital punishment or imprison a person. You have to go to Rome. And we've seen the back and forth between Herod and Pilate, the ping pong of politics, because neither of them really wants to get embroiled in this because from their view, the guy's innocent. 
Maybe he stirs up some discussions and some crowds gather, but from their viewpoint, he's not done anything worthy of criminal conduct or worthy of a death sentence. And so Rome is the one that's going to have to control that power, and it will fall to Pilate. Under the power of darkness, Herod and Pilate play a little role, as do the mobs, the religious leaders of the day, and those who will yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But the sovereign God of all creation is still at work because it is part of his plan that Christ will die for our sins. Simon is conscribed by, more than likely, a Roman along the road from where he has been held and beaten and now walks to Golgotha. is not a long walk. It is a public walk. It is a level walk. The cross behind me is a little bit of an overstatement in a good way, but we see artist renderings of Jesus carrying or dragging such a cross. It is not more than likely this cross. It would be just the beam that the arms were attached to. The vertical part of the structures were in, we might say, in place. They were already there on Golgotha. And so they were just carrying on their shoulder the beam on which they would be secured in Jesus' situation, nailed through the wrists on that beam. And he has been beaten. He has been, the flagellation has ripped the flesh down to the rib cage. His back is exposed. He's bleeding profusely. He's beaten. He's bruised. He's gone a long time now without any food. He is weak and he stumbles along the way. And they conscribe this man, Simon of Cyrene. We don't know anything about him. Many conjecture a lot about him. We do know the Cyrene was more than likely a northern Africa area. Uh, we would call him today black, obviously not African-American because he's not an American. And that day we would call him black. And he was conscripted to carry part of the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Simon of Cyrene. And if you're in a community group, uh, we have some exercises for you, if you follow the message, to do some digging on comparing and contrasting the Gospels and how they talk about this character, as well as some Old Testament prophecies that go further. Well, Luke 20, uh, 23, 27, and following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Verse 27 describes this crowd, and there are two components of the crowd. Remember, for this Jerusalem Passover, it was perhaps the largest, if not the largest assemblies of, assembly of Jews for Passover ever because of the rumors around Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the thousands that had seen his miracles work, and they're coming at a distance to watch it. We pejoratively look at the Old West and how crowds went out for a hanging. It's no different in antiquity. People go out to see a murderer killed, capital punishment ex exercised by the right of the state. So we've got these crowds that are following. In those crowds, you've got the gawkers, but you've also got people who are professional mourners. I've been to areas of Nigeria. You've perhaps been on places around the world where when a funeral takes place, there are professional mourners who will go and wail and lament. And it may seem odd to us culturally, but actually, if you're being uh, 
crucified for a crime and you have no family, there is a comfort to having mourners around. It's not just for show. But there would also be those who knew you, friends, family. And the title, Daughters of Jerusalem, is a bit of a tip. It is worth studying on your own. But in the main, he is talking to a group that is the most vulnerable. Daughters of Jerusalem, and then he will talk about weeping for themselves and their children. Reserve your tears. You're crying for the wrong reasons. Don't cry for me. Do not miss the context. He's beaten. He's bleeding. He's been flogged. He has a crown of thorns jammed on his head. He's been mocked and pushed around, carrying a cross. Simon is conscripted to carry part of the cross, part of the way. And in that context, he addresses them with a warning. Don't cry for me. Don't waste your tears on me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, barrenness in antiquity and even today in many cultures is a shameful, reproachful thing. We only need to look at Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth was elderly and barren. That was a stigma. When Rachel can't have children, she goes to her husband Jacob, give me children, else I die. In many cultures, polygamy, part of the motivation behind that was because they couldn't bear children, or especially sons who would be the workers and the farmers and the ones who would carry on the name, if you will. Even today, many of us in this room have been through infertility. Cindy and I had our first child, first time, boom, bingo. She wanted four children. She had a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> we'll be married. When you finish graduate school, we have four children two years apart. Well, the first one was born, and then five years of infertility later, we adopted because we couldn't have any more children. There was something in my wife's heart that said, give me children, else I die. She always wanted four children. I don't understand it all. And maybe it's not true for you as a woman. But the principle is, barrenness in that culture and context was looked as reproachful, shameful, disgraceful. And Elizabeth, the elder Elizabeth, is somewhat in hiding when she is visited and told she will have a son because older women don't get pregnant, and she gives birth to John the Baptist. Jesus says, it'd be better if you had never held a child, never nursed a child, it'd be better for you to carry the stigma of barrenness and infertility than to face the future if you don't understand the warning that it is at hand. It'll be a blessing. No, it's a blessing to have children. No, it's a blessing to be barren. Verse 20, look, turn to Luke 21, back a couple of pages or click a little bit. Luke 21, 22. Let's see the similar teachings of Christ's warnings. The Bible is full of warnings. We don't talk about this very much. It's sort of a uh, politically incorrect in the evangelical or other churches to talk about warning and fire and brimstone. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about it today. Luke 21, 22. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which were written will be fulfilled. God's word cannot be stopped. All things which were written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant in those, and to those who are, are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem 
will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Poignant for any person, any woman dealing with infertility, poignant for anyone with miscarriages, poignant for anyone to read these kinds of passages that says, if you are pregnant or nursing children, there's going to be great distress and wrath upon you, and these days are real. Back to Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 30. It'll be so bad, Jesus is saying, he's warning them, don't waste your tears on me. Cry for yourselves and your children. Verse 32, it's going to be so bad, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Verse 30 is a parallel statement of verse 29. It magnifies the terror that awaits if you don't heed the warning. Now, some of your Bibles have little A's and B's and little uh, uh, sub, uh, superscripted letters above verses. And in the middle of your Bible, the side of your Bible, you have cross-references if you have a Bible that has those cross-references. And your Bible might have a link to this verse that would take you to Hosea chapter 10 or Isaiah chapter 2. If it doesn't, you don't have a Bible with what's called an apparatus, but study Bibles and other Bibles that have those center columns and side columns are there for good reason. This quotation, say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us, comes from two different prophecies from the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah. Jesus is, in this context, warning them, don't worry and cry about me. Cry for yourselves and for your children because the time is going to come so badly that you will wish an earthquake opened up and swallowed you dead. It's going to be so bad, the wrath of God to come, that you will wish you could go hide in the mountains in a cave and avoid the disaster, but there is no escape. This is a man going to die in a few moments. And he's warning them, you don't get it. Don't cry for me. Listen to what I'm warning you about. If you don't understand who I am and why I came, you're going to wish one day that you were swallowed up by an earthquake. You're going to wish one day that you could hide in a cave and be destroyed. The same plea comes in the future. Lest you think it's just isolated in a few parts of the Bible, one more to turn to, Revelation chapter 6. Please note, for the record, it's Revelation, not Revelations. It's one of those pet peeves that just keeps me awake at night. It's Revelation, no S. Say it with me, will you? Revelation. Please don't ever say Revelations. Please, please, please. Revelation chapter 6. Now we have here a series of seals that are being broken and announcements being made. And we're going to look at one, Revelation 6, verse 12. John has been transported to a place called Patmos. He's been given a remarkable revelation that too many people don't read or ignore or think it's too difficult to understand when it is a rich telling of the future. I looked, verse 12, when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
Now notice verse 15. It's not enough that the tectonic plates and the earth is actually being devastated by the tsunami-like wrath of God. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the rocks and the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In a politically correct, let's all be nice and never say bad things about other religious groups, we don't like to talk about the fire and brimstone of the Scripture. The warnings of Christ don't, it doesn't matter what the world says, the warnings of Christ are real. He is screaming at us even today. What you do with this Jesus is critical. Back to Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 31, Jesus justifies the point he has made with this rather strange little reference. If these, what about these things when the tree is green and what will happen when it's dry? Well, at first it seems a little obscure, but it doesn't take much thinking. A green tree, green wood, does not burn well. In fact, it's very hard to kindle a fire, but dry wood burns very well. What's he saying by it? If God is going to punish the innocent Jesus to deal with this wrath to come, how much worse is it going to be when God punishes the, belie- the unbelievers who don't repent and respond to the warning? If he's going to kill, allow to be killed, and kill his only begotten son, the one who is a sinless man, and it's that bad, how bad do you think it will be when the wrath of God comes to the unbeliever? Don't cry for me. Reserve your tears for yourself and for your children and for those who don't know Christ because this is not going to be a pleasant future. It's going to be horrific. In less than 40 years, they would see it in one very real way when Titus, the Roman emperor, will come into Jerusalem and tear down the temple complex, the walls, and destroy the city. When you go to Israel, because it is God's will for you to go to Israel, we will take you to many places, and you will see there is nothing left standing. What is standing are the foundation stones of buildings. What is standing are the archaeological attempts to reconstructure it, reconfigure it, so you get an idea of what it was like. There is nothing of the temple complex remaining. Nothing. In fact, there's a mosque very close to where the temple used to be. There's nothing of the elaborate walls of Antonio Fortress. But there are some stones that were there when Christ walked There's nothing of the synagogues around the Sea of Galilee except tumbled over black asphalt and white stones for different synagogues that were constructed. They've all been overturned. In a very short span of time, the grandeur of Herod's construction and Jews' construction is all gone. So there was a literal fulfillment, a little taste of what was going to come about the wrath of God. 1 Peter 4, and this is the last time I'll make you turn, Almost to the end of your Bible, First and Second Peter, First Peter four. Peter is writing to those who are suffering for Christ's sake. 
when you read first and second peter he's writing to an audience that is enduring incredible suffering incredible mistreatment and the message of first peter is don't suffer for self-inflicted sin if you're going to suffer which you will be sure you're suffering for christ's sake that's the message of first peter first peter 4 17 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. That's kind of scary. The judgment will come on his church first. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter is saying the exact same thing Jesus is saying as all the passages we looked at. This warning cannot be stopped. It is going to happen. The only question is, how are you going to respond when you hear the warning? What are you going to do when the theological light on your dashboard comes on so bright, when your computer of your life says, warning, danger, listen to me. If you think it's unconscionable that that we would kill the innocent Christ, it's going to be far worse for those that don't understand the gospel. Finally, in verse 20, uh, 32 of Luke 23, in the final part of our text today, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. This prepares us for the crucifixion proper. It's Luke's little transition, but what is intriguing to Bible students and those who spend a little time in the Bible will see this is a fulfillment of two different prophecies. Isaiah 53, for one, it says he will be numbered with the transgressors. Two others. He's numbered with the transgressors who will be led to death. Now, we live in a context, and it's so woven into the fabric of our culture and our thinking and the way we live we've got to be kind and tolerant to everybody i mean we're beat over the head with the ugly stick of being intolerant and hateful and hating family values and blah 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 let's just clear the air for a minute you need to make a functional decision are you going to listen to the words of christ or the words of the culture don't let the world teach you theology Don't let the world tell you about your God. Now, in this context, we're supposed to be nice to everybody. And I agree, love is a great salve and a great transition to a lot of things. I agree. And we should be kind and loving and wonderful people. But when faced with false teaching or lies or heresy, we should also be the first to say, no, no. For years, when people knocked on my door in groups of two or threes to share their paraphernalia with me, I would, quote, engage them. And one day, when they knocked on my door, I didn't want to talk to them. And of course, they wanted to talk to me. By the way, they're not looking for converts. They're brainwashing and solidifying the people that are knocking on your doors. They aren't concerned that you join their church. They're brainwashing the men and women who knock on your doors because if they get them to do that for a couple of years, they got them for life. So they knock on my door and I say, I don't want to talk to you because you teach a false Jesus. It's so fun to see their response. (laughs) If you want to talk about the Jesus of the Bible, I'll tell you what the Jesus of the Bible says, not what your false Jesus 
teaching says, have a good day, and I close the door. Because I don't have time to fight a losing battle. Oh, Michael, you should engage them. You go engage them. God bless you. Knock yourself out. There are lines I've drawn in my life when I say, no, that's heresy. Oh, you're so unkind, you're so compassionate. I'm sorry, I think I'm following my Savior. If it's a lie, if it's untrue, if it's not the Jesus of Scripture, it's false teaching. Now, are we to go around beating people over the head of the Bible? No. Are we to burn other religious artifacts to make a point? No. But know your limits. And don't be afraid to look, smile and say, you know what? That's not the Jesus of Scripture. You're misrepresenting the Jesus of Scripture. And maybe God's Spirit will use that one line to beat that person over the head. And they re-examine more than six verses that they have in their pocket when they knock on your door. Ah, you can engage them in people that do it very well. God bless them, and I mean that sincerely. I'm just using it as an illustration. Scripture can't be thwarted. Prophecy cannot be stopped. Jesus died on a cross. It was to fulfill the word of God. But a disciple follows. And this is the caveat of Simon of Cyrene. We don't know why he's there. I think it's a safe conclusion that he was a worshiper during the Passover experience. And not everyone could stay in the city during Passover, and so they would stay out and they would come in. I don't think he was a worker coming in, some speculate. I think he was just a worshiper there from northern Africa area, and he came to worship, came to, as a Jew to worship Passover, at Passover. And so while he's there, this crucifixion is going to happen a few days later. And capital punishments always draw crowds. And if it is the largest assembly, if not the, one of the most populated assemblies ever for Passover, there'd be a lot of crowds going to see this Jesus crucified. The roads are narrow. It's not like thousands of people could line these roads, so it's jammed. And Simon of Cyrene is conscribed by a Roman, and that crossbar is put on his shoulders. And if you will beg, indulge me a moment, I think Simon is the first one who ever bore the cross and followed Jesus. Because it says in all Gospels, he walked behind Jesus. In a maddening crowd that is yelling, crucify him, and a group of religious zealots that want to murder a guy because he's a threat to their system, and a political pawn puppetry of Herod and Pilate, of a world that hates the message of this Jesus who's causing no riots, no rebellions. He's not fighting the government. He's not telling them not to pay taxes. He's not seditious. And the mob frenzy that wants to kill him, one man is pulled aside and said, you put this on your shoulders, and Simon of Cyrene walks behind Jesus to Golgotha. I don't think the Scripture just has, oh, by the ways. I think it's always deliberate and intentional. So when the warning comes out, there's one man, illustratively the way Lucas penned his gospel that is following him. Judgment is a present danger. It's a present danger for that audience, and it's a present danger for each one of us because we will not live forever on this earth. Now, 
the wrath of God is unimaginable. Many Christians don't like to teach it anymore. In fact, it's fallen out of favor with a lot of preaching. A lot of otherwise solid biblical teachers have annihilated the concept of God's wrath and hell because they don't believe in it. I think they're violating Scripture. Hell is taught. Jesus teaches about hell. Hell is throughout Scripture. We read a number of passages about the wrath to come. We're made in the image of God. Because of that, we have an eternal soul, to put it in layman's terms for all of us to comprehend. When we die, we will all be resurrected. Everybody will be resurrected. Because you have to have a resurrected body to live either eternally with Jesus or eternally apart from Jesus. This body will not live forever. I am so glad of that. I want a lean, mean, eternal machine. I don't want this body. I'm already sick of this body. It's only 55 years old. I want a new one. Some of you do too. Some of you young people are in denial. God bless you. Your day will come. But we're going to live forever. The difference is location and whom with we are living. And those who know Christ will live forever with Christ. Those who do not know Christ will live forever in the wrath and punishment of disbelief. How can God do that? That is not the question, men and women. The question is, why aren't we all over in that pond? The warning is clear. The warning is loud. The warning, the warning is all through the Bible. I don't know about you, but as a parent, I've yelled at my children a lot. I confess. My name is Michael, and I yell at my children. When they were little, and they would, you know, we always had, you know, it's always out in the front yard kicking the ball around. We had a house that had a bit of a hill that went into a, a pretty busy street. First home Cindy and I purchased. And uh, both of our, our younger daughters at that time, you know, you're playing around, they would run into the street. Now, I don't say, honey, uh, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, but please don't go out into the street because a car will hit and kill you. When she's running towards the street, I go, stop! Don't go in the street! You'll get hit by a car! I want to frighten her. I don't want her to get hurt. God made sidewalks in our neighborhood. Ride your bike on the sidewalk, not in the street. So what does a child do? They look around and they ride in the street. Because they're depraved, just like you and me. Because the warning sign says, don't do this. And what do we do? We do the precise thing the warning sign says. I've often thought in my sanctified imagination, if I could be on top of a 20-story building and my children's lice are represented by streets and alleys and I had a bullhorn and I could watch their lives and I could see that there was a gang around this corner or drugs and violence and sex or a car coming too quickly and I could through the bullhorn go, don't go down that road. I'd love to parent that way, wouldn't you? Just to watch them and be careful and be safe and make good decisions and make the right changes and choices in life and protect them as best possible. And maybe the firstborn compliant or the young compliant or whoever the compliant child is listens to mom or dad's voice and goes, oh, mom and dad said don't do that. I'm not going to do that. But you know, most of our kids are just like you and me. I don't see anything. I can go down that alley. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm going to do my own thing. I'm a responsible adult. I'm 18. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. 
we're no different when we ignore God's warnings. We're no different when we ignore the injunctions of Scripture not to be in the world. Not to be of it. Not to be owned by it. We're no different when we choose to live a life of sexual promiscuity, of indiscretion, of not loving our husbands and wives the way God wants us to, not parenting our kids, not being good stewards of the money he gives us, not being ethical about our business dealings, not being truthful. We do the very same thing when we ignore God's warnings. Ah, we don't talk about this very much, do we? A number of years ago, we were in Northern Virginia, D.C. area, and Luis Palau had come. We were planning one of his amazing festivals, and he was talking to a small group of us and had us close our eyes, and he led us in a prayer. And I'll never forget one of the questions he asked. He said, what was the last thing you cried about? And he gave us a moment of quiet. And then he said, have you ever cried for a friend who doesn't know Jesus? I've never forgotten that question. You see, we cry about the wrong things. We cry about the dogs and the cats and Sarah McLaughlin singing in the arms of the angels. <laughs> and in all due respect, I don't care. Because 1.2 million children are being flushed down a disposal. The image of God is more important. Doesn't mean I hate animals. God is more concerned about life. The sacred life of a human being made in the image of God. And the warnings are going out to those who bear his image, you and me. And we cry for a baby seal or an unloved cat or dog or a stranded whale. And you know, I, I mean no disrespect for people that want to go out and save a whale on a beach. I just don't care. Because they don't bear the image of God. Call me a PETA insensitive person. The warning of the Father is that you and I are going to spend an eternity in one place or another. And the things of the world will go strangely dim. And the gods we create and the activities that we do, many of which are fine, well, and good, and civic, and wonderful, and hug the earth, and hug the tree, and go for it, baby, go for it. You're going to spend an eternity in one place or the other. When's the last time you wept for somebody that doesn't know Christ? And if the Savior can say, don't cry for me as I'm being crucified, weep for yourself and your kids. That's a warning. If you don't know Christ, <laughs> he lived, he died, he was buried to confirm his death. He came back from the dead three days later to prove his power over life. And he makes the offer any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation are given a free gift, an eternal life, a free gift. He forgives you of your sins and grants you the right to be an heir to the kingdom of God that's eternal. That's not the warning side, that's the offer side. The warning side, if you don't hear the offer, know well what you're going to face. 
And for you and I who know Christ, are we weeping for the right things? He loves us all. He died to demonstrate it. This life is short. It's brief. It's a vapor. It's fog on a mirror. It's a mist. It's smoke that goes away. This earth is not home. Father in heaven, uncomfortable for many of us to think through a warning like this, but this is Jesus. These are his words, and we are adults sober and attentive to what your word tells us. A disciple will follow you no matter what the world thinks, not pulled and pushed by a culture that has lost its mind. May we be men and women who follow you at your word, who pick up the cross when difficult, when arduous, when unpopular, and we follow you nonetheless. Help us to cry for the right things and help us to be a light to a dying world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.